our Father. <laughs> we rejoice that the finite can know the infinite. That the creator speaks to the created. That the designer speaks to the designed. Speak in the stillness as we wait on thee. Help us to know a thing as evil even when we think it's good. Lay bare the complexities of our heart and the motives behind our actions. Reveal the transgressions to which we are blind, but you see so clearly. We desire to see our sin, then bewail and confess in sincerity. Help us to mourn for sin more than other people mourn. We refuse to cherish and adore the sin that caused you so much grief. Work in us profound and abiding repentance. Give us the fullness of godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves. And at the end of our repenting, we shall stand up and walk away with confidence knowing that our prayers and tears could not suffice to pardon our sins, only the work of Christ. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Last week, God made us put on overalls. He wanted to teach us about the church, and he did so by taking us to a field. He revealed to us that some people plant and other people water, but God gives the growth. In today's text, God is still teaching us about the church, about his church, but he switches metaphors. Look at the end of verse 9, verse 9b. You are God's field, God's building. He switches from an agricultural metaphor to an architectural metaphor. God moves from the, from the farm to the construction site. The end of verse 9 functions as a bridge to the next analogy. Last week, God made us put on blue jean overalls. This week, God makes us put on yellow hard hats. Last week, the church of God as a farm. This week, the church of God as a construction site. You are going to see God, through Paul, shift from using agrarian language to architectural language. And you may ask, why are we switching metaphors? There are two reasons. First, because in the church of Corinth, there were country people and urban people. Farmers and builders. People who during the week wore blue jean overalls and people who during the week wore yellow hard hats. People who spent their days laying seed and people who spent their days laying brick. People who mapped out farm plots and people who mapped out architectural plans. The city of Corinth was filled with farmers, masons, carpenters, engravers, and architects. The church made up a little snapshot of the city. So the church had all these groups as well. Country people and urban people. People that are used to seeing farms and people that are used to seeing big buildings. God is bringing teaching about the church to their jobs. Here's how I can use your job to teach you about my church. 
The first reason we are switching metaphors is because at the church of Corinth, there were country people and urban people. The second reason is because one analogy alone could not teach the complexities of the church. When we go from the farm to the construction site, we learn new, fresh truths about the church. So put on your yellow hard hats. We are walking onto God's construction site. There are three movements in the text. We see the church is God's construction project. That's verses 9b through 15. The church is God's temple, verses 16 and 17. The church is God's gift to you, verses 18 through 23. The church is God's construction project. The church is God's temple. And I love this. The church is God's gift to you. We will take them one at a time, and then I'll rein some application throughout. Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Paul calls himself a skilled master builder. This Greek word only appears one time in the Bible and it's architecton, where we get our word, architect. Paul says, I am skilled at designing blueprints. I'm gifted at drawing the plans for the construction. In the ancient world, this master builder was particularly, a particularly gifted individual who not only drew the plans, but also coordinated the construction crews to carry out the project. He was the architect and the general contractor rolled into one. Which if you've ever built anything, you know how nice it would be to have those two be the same person. Where was Paul when I built this building? <laughs> Paul is the architect, the builder, the master workman, the skilled craftsman, all rolled into one. Paul doesn't just stay in an air-conditioned office. He's at the construction site. He's getting his hands dirty. He's wearing a yellow hard hat. This master builder is a technical term. And what I want you to see is that, that Paul's duty goes beyond that of an architect. He's also the project manager. He's, he's, he's bringing the trades together and instructing them on how to proceed. Paul's a busy man. In the last sermon, he was a farmhand. Now he's a head contractor. He goes from, the, from being a farmer to a builder all in the span of one verse. From driving a John Deere to operating a crane all in the same day. Paul calls himself a skilled master builder. Does that sound conceited to you? If I said to you, I'm a skilled master preacher. Sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? Well, there are lower levels of preachers, but I am on the master level. There are plumbers, and then there are master plumbers. There are electricians, and then there are master electricians. There are preachers, and then there are master preachers. 
It's fine once you hear it in the construction category, but when you move it into the ministry category, it just gets a bit cringy. I don't think this is prideful, however. This is an analogy. You press any analogy too far and it falls apart. Paul says he's gifted at church planning. He's gifted at building churches because of the grace of God given to him. That's not prideful. The Lord did it. Paul says, he empowered me. He enabled me. Paul laid the foundation, meaning he planted the church. He was boots on the ground when they broke ground. Paul started 14 or so churches. It was widely known. He is a master builder. Paul speaks of the whole church as God's building. Now, not the universal church as God's building. Not here. This is the local church as God's building. The church at Corinth, the whole congregation is God's building. Not the individual believer as God's building. But all of them collectively. Now we're going to discover some glorious truths from this text on how God builds this building. How God builds his church. There's a lot of ecclesiology in this chapter. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And may God use this text to strengthen our ecclesiology. The American church needs to recover a good ecclesiology. When you have weak ecclesiology, it's anything goes. And that's why we have so much nonsense going on in churches. That's why you have the name church on assemblies that aren't worthy of its name. The pastors don't have a good ecclesiology. So no wonder the people don't. We have people that don't know what a biblical church is. Leading churches. This text is church planting as a construction project. Paul laid the foundation. The f foundations in our day are, are concrete. Foundations in this day were stone. What was the foundation Paul laid? Verse 11. For no one, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. A cement truck didn't pour this foundation. Ancient people in sandals didn't lay this foundation. Paul preached this foundation. He laid a foundation by preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. He preached the life of Christ, how it was sinless. He preached the suffering of Christ, how it was predicted. He preached the death of Christ, how it was substitutionary. He preached the resurrection of Christ, how it was necessary. He preached the ascension of Christ, how it was glorious. He preached the full person and work of Jesus Christ. That was the foundation of this church. The foundation for any structure is important. The foundation determines the size, the shape, and, and the strength of the building. The, the, the foundation gives the, the structure an unshakable, indispensable, stabilizing strength. A foundation is indispensable to a building and so Christ is indispensable to a true church. At the bottom of everything 
must be Jesus Christ. You can have a gifted music ministry, an exciting children's ministry, a relational small group ministry. You can have all kinds of nice things, but they better be built on Jesus Christ. Apart from that, they will crumble. They will not last. They, they need the stabilizing person and work of Christ to endure. Paul is not the foundation. The foundation of the church can't be the pastor. Ministries are not the foundation. A church can't be built off programming. Only Christ as the foundation can bear the full weight of the church. Paul says in verse 10, let, let each construction crew, let, let each carpenter take particular care how he builds on this foundation. The foundation must control the materials used for the building. Let each one take care how he builds upon it because poorly constructed buildings are not just ugly. They are dangerous. Maybe the building goes up quickly, but it's not going to be there long. 95 mile an hour winds are going to bring it down. Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Let's stop here. Paul laid the foundation and he expects others to put up the walls, add flooring, add a roof. He wants them to choose materials that are worthy of the foundation. There are high quality materials available and then there are inferior materials available. They can build with six different types of material. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. The first three form a group, and the last three form a group. You can build with the choicest of materials, or you can build with the cheapest of materials. The materials come in grades of excellence. The best is better than brick, and the worst is worse than styrofoam. Paul lays out the products in descending order of worth, descending order of value. They aren't only descending in value, but they're descending in endurance. Some products last a lot longer. You can build with gold bricks or you can build with styrofoam siding. Now it's here that I want to give you an ecclesiology principle. Remember, ecclesiology is simply the study of the church, the study of what the Bible says about the church. The first ecclesiology principle is this. God cares about his church and he holds its leaders accountable for how they build it. God cares about his church and he holds its leaders accountable for how they build it. Have you noticed that the beginning of 1 Corinthians has functioned almost like a pastoral epistle? It focuses in on the duties of a pastor. You're going to see that all throughout the text. Paul tells church leaders they are to exercise care and caution in building the church. This is not talking about physical buildings. We do have a stewardship of physical buildings. But this is talking about the spiritual building. You, you don't run the church like a business. You don't build a church with business principles. 
You can't be looking for the quickest way for the church to grow numerically. The world cannot train us on how to build the church. Only God can. Think about what I just said. Why is that even, why is that even necessary for me to say in a church? The world cannot train us how to build a church. Only God can. Is everything we do here worthy of the foundation? Is Christ at the bottom of it all? I've had my hand in a lot of building projects over the last three years. And for three years, here's what people have told me. We are missing good craftsmen. Craftsmanship has, has really died among the trades. They just throw houses up and move on to the next one. No one builds quality anymore. And every time I heard that, I, I wondered if that could be said of churches as well. It's like they don't care how they build it anymore. They just throw it up as fast as they can and move on. We need spiritual craftsmen who take time for the detail work. Now, where do we get this gold, silver, precious stones to build God's church? What conference sells that? Church growth books and church growth conferences all lack one thing. A good ecclesiology. How can you talk about how to build the church when you do not have a biblical definition of a church? Which leads us to our second ecclesiology principle and it's this. God supplies the building materials. You simply must use them. You build the church by giving it doctrine. God supplies the building materials. We simply must use them. You build the church by giving it doctrine. Everything you need to have a strong ecclesiology, everything you need to build a healthy church is found in this book. Clement of Alexandria, Erasmus, Calvin, Meyer, Wearsby, all believe these materials, gold, silver, precious stones, are doctrine. It's the word of God. To put it into context with the last three sermons, doctrine is the meat for the church, the seed for the field, and now the materials for the building. I, I don't think you need to go assigning certain doctrines as gold and certain doctrines as silver, <laughs> saying things like gold is election and predestination. Silver is justification by faith alone. We don't need to identify what is gold and silver and precious stones. What teaching falls into category one, two, and three. It's impossible to do that. And it's not the intent of the author. The point is God supplies the building materials in his word. Beloved, I want to build this church to endure the storms of life. When the 95 mile an hour winds come, you are fine because the deep doctrine sustains you in the dark times of life. I am not going to waste my time or yours by giving you styrofoam siding. The storms of life will destroy that. You need something sturdier. The first group of three, gold, silver, precious stones, are doctrine, God's wisdom. 
The second group of three, wood, hay, straw, are human wisdom. I do want to point out that wood, hay, and straw are not heretical building materials. Paul told us in other places that those who preach a false gospel, let them be accursed. People that, that build the church with wood, hay, straw aren't promoting another way of salvation. They are Christians. They, are, they have repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ alone for their soul's salvation. Their foundation is Christ. But they are not building the church with deep doctrine. There are gold churches and there are hay churches. We know that from the seven churches of Revelation. The Corinthians were apparently doing some building with hay. It was not anti-gospel. It was just not the strong, steady stuff. It wasn't permanent. It was passing. It was temporary. They built with stuff that was easy to obtain. Straw, hay, you can find it in your backyard. They didn't build with what was hard to obtain. Gold, silver, precious stones. Hay churches, straw churches, are actually churches. They have Christ as the foundation. They are not imposter churches. They just are not using good materials to build. Wood, hay, and straw are not defined for us. I actually think they're different in each age. Now we can give a broad definition. It's not giving people deep doctrine. Whatever they are building the church with, it's not deep, sturdy doctrine. Wood, hay, and straw could be a thousand things. It could be trading the word of God for political commentary. It could be valuing tradition over the word of God. It could be making the gospel something it's not, like social reform. It could be giving your people sugar donuts instead of the meat of the word. It could be a thousand different things. So do we need to a list of the thousand different things to make sure we aren't doing each one of them? No. We know what the gold, silver, and precious stones are. We need to keep giving our people doctrine. That is sufficient. We don't need to go on some crusade listing all the wood and hay and straw of our culture. Verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Before we got into this building, we had to get an occupancy permit. Someone came in and checked the building for safety purposes and said, you have permission to occupy it. Where I live in Kentucky, the, the housing inspections are totally different than where many of you live in, in Tennessee. What passes some of our inspections would never pass some of your inspections. You that live in Tennessee, more inspections are required of you than us in Kentucky. 
This verse is saying, Jesus will give the final inspection on the building project and his inspection is the same across state lines. In fact, it's the same across borders. No matter if the church is in Kentucky or Cameroon, Tennessee or Tanzania. Which leads us to our third ecclesiology principle. Jesus is the final church inspector and he will try the quality of everyone's work. Jesus is the final church inspector and he will try the quality of everyone's work. And he will do this on the day. The final day when everything is wrapped up. This day that is spoken of all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New. Jesus alone determines the ultimate value of each man's work. How will Jesus inspect his churches? Will he come swinging a sledgehammer and wearing a t-shirt that says, It's demo day? Is he a divine Chip and Joanna Gaines? No, he will not test the work with a sledgehammer. He will do so using fire. His fire will test the quality of each man's work. The fire will determine if it's perishable or if it's an imperishable building. You've heard people say in Florida, some of you have a second house in Florida. You've heard people say in Florida, this house will withstand a hurricane. Well, you really don't know that until a hurricane comes into town. A hurricane is coming through town with Jesus. Well, kind of. He will not test it with 175 mile an hour winds. He will test it with heat. A catastrophic event will demonstrate the quality of the materials used to build the church. On the day, many pastors will see much of their work incinerated because it was lacking in eternal significance. I told you that there were six building materials which were giving in decreasing value. But notice, they were also given in increasing flammability. Decreasing value and increasing flammability. Some people's work, it's inflammable. Some people's work, it's highly flammable. Fire will not harm the first three on the list. It will consume the final three. Trivial sermons will burn. Cotton candy preaching will melt. And I don't care how many people are lining up to taste it, it will melt on the day. But costly materials, a church built with deep doctrine will withstand the fire of God's scrutiny. There is a teaching. There is a teaching that is permanent and valuable. It will survive the fire. Some builders, some church leaders, will suffer humiliation, having their work burned to the ground. 
Um, Imagine how terrible it will be to see everything you've given yourself to is a total waste. All the church effort was a joke. Nothing lasted. A church will not be judged on its superficial appearance. It will not be judged on its buildings. This is a beautiful building. Our church will not be judged on this. It will not be judged on its buildings, its size, its budgets, its social media reach, or its trendiness. Whatever perceived human measurements that mean so much to our culture will not be the inspection guide Jesus uses. There's a final exam that every church must take. Was it erected by the power of God or by your own gifts and abilities and tricks? Entrepreneurship is blind. Was it human entrepreneurship that led to all of this or divine ambition? Which builders were faithful and which ones were carnival clowns? I've had you focus your ecclesiology. I have, I've had you focus your ecclesiology on, on churches in the states. But let's bring this to churches around the world. In the Amazon jungles, there will be a little church meeting under a thatched roof. A, a roof made of straw. No walls, just a flammable roof. And on that day, None of their work will burn. They built their physical structure with flammable materials, but built their spiritual structure with bricks of gold. The physical building and the spiritual building could be totally opposite. There could be a church that meets in the most beautiful cathedral with marble columns, magnificent architecture, wonderful craftsmanship, but it will be incinerated on that day because although it was physically built with wonderful materials, they spiritually built it with flammable straw and hay. Jesus is not impressed with our ecclesiology. He's not impressed that we could build churches without the deep doctrine for which he died to leave us. Which which brings us to our fourth ecclesiology principle. Kyle Sheeran's pastoral work will be tested. Every pastor's work at FFC will be tested. Kyle Sheeran's pastoral work will be tested. Every pastor's work at FFC will be tested. That's sobering. God's testing fire will be upon my labor for this church. God's testing fire will be upon the labor of every elder of this church. Daniel Hurd and Dan Herbster will stand before God and give an account with how they pastored you. The day is coming when our construction efforts 
will be evaluated. Cheap and inferior materials used by us will be found out. I would like to think that none of my work will be burned. But I know some of it will. Some of my work here will not survive the flame. I, I can take you back to certain decisions I made at the beginning. Certain compromises. Nothing heretical, nothing inherently sinful. Just wood, hay, straw. Just starting things that didn't have biblical staying power. Pastor, seminar teacher, church leader, any shoddy workmanship will be revealed. Any shoddy workmanship will be revealed. Not giving your all to teaching prep, sermon prep, not loving the sheep, but using the sheep. Not serving with joy and gladness. I am very aware, more aware now than at any other moment in my pastoral ministry, my labor among you will be evaluated. If this church is built on personality or programs or popularity, it will be revealed in the end. Each week, I talk to pastors of other churches. Pastors who are going through a really hard time. Some of them are just in some very unhealthy congregational polity churches. And if I could, I would hire all of them. They have people leave their church sometimes in big groups. They talk to me and say, attendance was down 50%. All because I would not compromise to this power group. He'll say, they're, they're, they're talking to me saying, look at what his decisions are doing to the church. Look at what his preaching is doing to the church. Look at what his leadership is doing to the church. And I always say, dear pastor, await God's final judgment since he alone can judge the work. The ultimate evaluation belongs to God, not disgruntled church members. Now, could I just hit you with some bullet points? Like if I were preaching this text to a bunch of pastors, and I am, quite a few current ones, quite a few former ones, quite a few future ones. When it comes to a church... Do not overlook small beginnings. It's not about coming out of the gate quick. It's about finishing the race. Long obedience in the same direction. Pastor, the building may be slow, but you're using good materials. Don't lose hope. Keep building with the right stuff. Pastors that build with gold, silver, and precious stones are not flashy to the world. Don't expect or desire praise from men. There will be times when you are falsely accused, when your motives are questioned. There will be moments when you feel like people are dogpiling on you. 
Don't ever forget, the ultimate evaluation of leaders belongs to God, not Twitter. Pastoral work is hard work. You wear a yellow hard hat for a reason. It's dangerous. It requires a lot of your time, a lot of your effort, and a lot from your family. Count the cost before getting in. It requires broad shoulders. If you can't handle the weight of it, maybe this isn't for you. My pastoral acquaintances and friends who have tried to start a church and tried to build a church and failed are not a few. Every time my phone buzzes, I think, I'm going to give this to Daniel Hurd. Pastor friends who have failed in planting, pastoring, they're not a few. Maybe you don't have the giftings to plant a church or to be the primary preaching pastor at a church. That sounds hard to hear, I know. But our church has quite a few men who would tell you, I wish someone would have told me that 10 years ago. I've never been one to welcome with open arms every man with a desire for pastoral leadership. Some, frankly, are not qualified, are not gifted, and are not, a strong, and are not strong enough theologically. They don't deal in gold, silver, and precious stones. They deal in wood, hay, and straw. Some are not strong enough leaders in their homes. They don't lead their wives or discipline their children. They don't need to be behind a pulpit. They need to be in the pew. I'm letting you in on some personal pastoral conversations that I have on the monthly, sometimes on the weekly. My dad, his name is uh, Chuck. He used to drive a, a truck, big truck, still does. And he has a handle, Chuck wagon. <laughs> my, my dad, Chuck wagon. Um, he can build anything. He's just a, he's just a, he's, he's just a jack of all trades. I'm not. I am not gifted at building. Now, I can say that about a picnic table, but I cannot say that about a church because it is my job. It is my responsibility to build this church with spiritual gold, silver, and precious stones. If I cannot do it effectively, I need to step aside. Verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. There are two categories of work, valuable and useless. If the work proves valuable, the builders will be rewarded. The, the pastor is not saved by works. He is rewarded for works. Paul does not tell us what the reward will be. We have no idea. Ruling on the new earth, satisfaction of knowing you please God, no more receding hairline, I don't know. It's going to be great. 
there was a Puritan named Thomas Watson who spoke about these rewards. He said, and I quote, let me tell you, the more labor you have put forth for the kingdom of heaven, the more degrees of glory you shall have. As there are degrees of torment in hell, so of glory in heaven. End quote. Verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The builder who built with wood, hay, straw will lose his reward. His work will perish, but he will not. He will be rescued. The thought here is, is that he will scrape through by the skin of his teeth. He, he will not burn, but he will have the smell of fire on him. His eyebrows singed off. Now, let me... Let me walk through what this passage does not teach. It does not teach purgatory. Few passages in the Bible have been abused more than this one. The Roman Catholic Church weaponized it to teach the doctrine of purgatory. That damnable doctrine that is not found anywhere in the scriptures. They make an argument for it mostly from apocryphal books and this one verse. They take the thought of barely escaping to teach some sort of post-mortem purification. That interpretation can go to the hell from which it came. Notice, it's the work being tested, not the person. Something that the Catholic Church's Second Council of Lyon in 1274 totally missed. This verse has endured a long history of poor interpretation, but not just from the Roman Catholic Church, also from many Baptist churches as well. Of course, one is another level of heresy. One is simply a bad interpretation, but still, this poor verse has had a rough life. Some have used this verse to teach what happens when a person commits suicide. This is not about suicide either. Suicide is a sin, it is self-murder. I don't think it's the unforgivable sin. Some groups teach that. Either way, this text is not talking about that. It's about the quality of church work being tested. Paul is not talking in salvific categories here. It doesn't threaten the loss of salvation, but the loss will be serious. It's a loss of rewards. This judgment applies to the efforts, not the results. God gives the growth. This is a judgment of service, not salvation. They're not going to lose their salvation. They're not going to hell. This is not making a soteriological statement. Quality building does not earn salvation, and lackluster building does not lose it. This is not the final fire. It is a testing fire. This fire does not punish or destroy, but it manifests. Non-Christian, my work will face the fire of God's testing. 
your body and soul will face the fire of God's wrath. My work will face the fire of God's testing. Your work will face the fire of God's wrath. A pastor's work will face the fire. But we will not face the fire. You will face the fire. I don't know what previous church experiences were like for you. I don't know if they beat around the bush on this. I don't know if they had some mindset that they would be super, super tender and then once you felt comfortable and were like family, then they would tell you what the Bible says about your eternity. I want you to feel loved. I want you to feel cared for. I'm not really interested in you feeling comfortable. I hope this makes you feel uncomfortable. The Bible says there's a massive chasm between you and God. He's holy and you are not. You were created for his pleasure, but you continually reject him. You were born a sinner, a sinner by birth, and you chose to sin, sinner by choice, sinner by birth and sinner by choice. And Jesus came to live sinlessly. His death on the cross and resurrection three days later made it possible for all those who repent and believe on him to avoid the wrath of God and instead experience the pleasure of God. Non-Christian, so glad you're here every Sunday. So glad. Non-Christian, this church is built on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're standing on it. It's our foundation. So we have no other message for you than this. Repent, believe on Christ, and be saved. The church is God's construction project, verses 9b through 15. The church is God's temple, verse 16 and 17. The first movement, <laughs> breathe deeply, church. The first movement was really long. The next two are really short scratch the word really the next two are short <laughs> verse 16 do you not know this implies they should have known do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you now is this talking about the church or talking about the individual the Spirit of God in the local church as a whole or just in the individual? There's tension between the one and the many. Later, Paul will talk about the believer's body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, but here he is clearly talking about the church, the local church. He's addressing the matter in a corporate sense. The church is God's temple. God chooses to live in and among his people, the church. Paul compares the church to the Old Testament temple. The temple represented a sacred space in the Old Testament. You couldn't just do whatever you wanted to in that building. Paul states, what constitutes the true temple of God now is the church. The church is the equivalent to the Old Testament temple. Commentators say Paul wrote this in the mid-50s of the first century. 
the temple was not destroyed by the armies of Titus until A.D. 70. Fifteen or so years after he wrote these words. Paul is saying, no longer is God's presence tied to a building or a particular place, but rather to a group of people. God manifest himself in a whole new temple. He's saying all this as the temple is still functioning in Jerusalem. The temple was a magnificent building that, that dominated the entire city. It was the Big Ben of London, the Eiffel Tower of Paris, the Chick-fil-A of Hopkinsville. <laughs> Paul says, that big building, that temple, so much action going on over there, all those sacrifices, needless. All that activity, that building, obsolete. Now, this would have sent shockwaves throughout Judaism. The local church is the place where the Spirit dwells. Just as Yahweh resided in the temple under the old covenant, so God's Spirit resides in the new temple, the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Notice the temple imagery seems to take over the building imagery. FFC, first you were a building, now you are a temple. There are, are people who want to destroy you. There are some who want to destroy the local church. They want to set up detonating device to bring you down, to corrupt you, to ruin you, to spoil you. God's temple is sacred and you are his temple. Anyone harming the church spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally, God will destroy them. No one will get away with it. He is more committed to his church surviving than you are. Which brings us to our fifth ecclesiology principle. God protects his church. God protects his church. Remember that church in North Korea? Remember that church in Somalia, Yemen, Eritrea? God says, you destroy my church and I will destroy you. He has no problem saying that. You take a life, your life will be taken. God wrote the death penalty. He doesn't have a problem with it. God will take action because his people are his sacred dwelling. There are, there are three groups of people associated with the, with the church. Some who build well, they use gold, silver, precious stones. Some who do not build well, they use wood, hay, and straw. Flawed teaching, watered-down teaching, culturally pleasing teaching. What will happen to that teaching? You've heard of the three little pigs? I'll huff and puff and, and blow your house down. God will reveal the quality of the building materials. The three little pigs survive. 
but great damage is done. Some who build well, some who do not build well, then some who destroy. These are false teachers, and these are persecutors of the church. The church is God's construction project. The church is God's temple. Finally, the church is God's gift to you. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You have to see the church related to God's perspective, not the world's. The world says the church is a curse. God says it is a gift. The church at Corinth started out well. It was a fun city, exciting city, young church. Paul wanted to key them in to some cultural pressures. The culture is going to think of the church like a bunch of fools. But don't let that wear on you. The church isn't who they say the church is. The church is who I say the church is. Don't be overawed by Corinth. They mock the cross. We glory in the cross. You can't at the same time follow Christ and be admired by the world. You do understand that, right? You can't at the same time follow Christ and then be admired by the world. What the world calls smart, God calls stupid. Verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he watches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. There are two Old Testament citations here. Job 5 verse 13 and Psalm 94 verse 11. Both quotes allude to this thought. Those outside of God, those outside of the church, think they are winning. They are not. Wear the uniform well, FFC. Don't fall victim to their ideologies. Don't, don't try to be a cool, hip, young church. Be a faithful church. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. Paul here circles back around to the division in the church. He says it's really absurd to argue over teachers in the church. They all belong to you. See, the church had lionized certain leaders. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. And he's saying, why lionize them? All contribute to the church and all belong to the church. All are a gift to the church. From every time period. Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, they all belong to you. Martin Luther is ours. John Wesley is ours. If you're reformed, there's, there's some things you can learn from Wesley. The church present and the church throughout the ages is yours. It's God's gift to you. Paul lists eight things that are ours. It's a selective list, not an exhaustive list. But, but he says, Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. Cephas is yours. God does not bless us with one teacher, but every teacher. The world is yours. 
Charles Spurgeon said, 10,000 flowers all speaking to me of my father's kindness towards me. Life is yours. One man said, every breath you take, every beat of your heart, every chemical transaction in your body, every day you face, every night you sleep, every movement you make, every word, every deed, every relationship, every accomplishment, every plan, failed or successful, every emotion that arises, every thought that passes, every book you read, all of life is yours. Then he says, death is yours. It is the kind messenger that will fetch you to your father's house. It will not master you. You will master it. The present is yours. This moment. Right here. Is yours. The future is yours. John Piper says, you do not belong to the future. The future belongs to you. Everything that will come to pass from this moment on will work to your advantage in Christ. Verse 23. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You are already reigning with Christ and everything is for your benefit. There are no limits to your possessions in Christ. How rich we are in Christ. We are owned by Christ. We are his property. Churches don't belong to denominations. Congregations don't belong to people or committees. We belong to Christ. We are his possession. We are his treasure. He purchased us with his blood. And I like the chain that Paul throws out to us. He sets up the chain. The chain. All things belong to you because you belong to Christ and he belongs to God. Father, what a gift you have given us in this local church. Help us to realize we are always in a building project. Help us to be using good materials. Help this exposition to result in good ecclesiology for your church. Help our people to have a healthy understanding of a local church. Father, thank you for using this text about building your church to actually build your church. You are our rock and our redeemer. Thank you for protecting your church. Amen.